This is the Pain Information Network, episode 13. 13 isn't a bad number. It's a good number. We're at the World Institute of Pain. I have Dr. Deborah Tracy and I have Dr. Ralph Justice talking with us today about a number of different pain uh, control strategies and items that I think are fun to talk about. So we're going to talk about these today and have a little bit of uh, side comment. We look forward to all the comments you give us at paininformation.com. Please drop by there, leave us a comment, and go to iTunes, please, and uh, leave a review. We look at all of these, and it really helps the show. It keeps us going. So let's go talk to them. I'm uh, really psyched to have uh, Dr. Uh, Deborah Tracy with us today. And uh, Deborah is a practicing uh, physician interventionalist, uh, does a broad uh, range of pain control in southern Florida. And with us again is uh, Dr. Ralph Justice, Dr. Justice. And um, we're going to talk today uh, about facet joint pain. And I briefly brought that up. I've talked about how you're back is broken up into a front part and a back part and the back part are like little knuckles they can get arthritic and there are certain conditions that make them more arthritic and there are certain things we can do about it and it's definitely a significant source of pain so we got a new folk here tell us a little bit about yourself deborah so i practice in florida about north of tampa about 50 minutes north of tampa in a very highly Medicare population, so it's very, very many patients who have geriatric problems. And this facet joint problem happens as we age, because as we age, we decay and our body deteriorates. And joints are something that connect our body to each other. We have joints in our fingers, joints in our wrists, joints in our necks, knees, and our ankles. And we have joints in our spine that we don't see as we do the others. So the joints in our spine are called these facet joints. And as we age, we bend, we bend forward, we bend backward. These joints grind against each other, and they become arthritic and deteriorated and inflamed. And they can cause quite a bit of pain. And in my opinion, they're probably less understood by the medical profession than other types of joint pain. So in our pain practices these days, I think we're spending a lot of time trying to diagnose and select the appropriate patients for these facet joint injections that we do, which are wonderful because we can give them a more permanent solution, which is called facet joint ablation. Ralph, did you want to say something on that? Sure. Thanks, Deborah. Um, You know, I'd like to talk about basically, I I agree with everything you said. Uh, I think uh, one of the issues with uh, back pain or facet joint pain a lot of it, a lot of times it's misdiagnosis as, as other symptoms. Uh, patients get x-rays and, you know, when you have these overgrowth, uh, of, of the knuckles, like, like, uh, Hans mentioned, um, you know, it looks bad on x-ray, but really, you don't really need treatment sometimes. You really need to treat the symptoms rather than, than the image itself. So, I think going along, you know, how, how do you, how do you diagnose these patients? First and foremost, you really don't want to send these patients to a surgeon because the surgeon can make it look good, but then, the cure is going to be worse than the problem itself. What we really need to do is 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 examine these patients, and then and then we start uh, with a good physical examination. We can figure out what's going on with these patients, and and then and then we tr- we start treating them. How do we treat them? You know, and there's various forms of treatment from conservative to injection therapy. 
different things that we can talk about further. Um, why don't you talk about how you, how you treat your patients, Deborah? Well, you know, like you said, diagnosis is so important. And patient selection is important, too, because if you don't select the right patient, you're not going to get the right result. So I select my patients by doing a good physical examination, which I know you do, Ralph. You came from a very highly regarded institution. And so facet joint pain is kind of pain that's kind of, we call it axial, and it means across the back, and it can radiate into the buttock and into the thigh, sometimes even down the leg, but rarely. And so, and we can do what we call evocative maneuvers, have you bend, have you twist, have you lean backwards, and see if the pain increases. We can also do what we call a facet grind test, which has you rotate as we press on your shoulders. And, you know, the, the, the idea with the facet joints is that Back pain can be multifactorial, so we can have facet joint pain, we can have disc pain, we can have ligament pain, and we can have bone pain. But, you know, even if we got, in in my area, if I give my patients 50 to 60% relief and they don't have to think about pain all day long, they're pretty darn happy. So I like doing the, the, the facet joint block because it tells us, it's a diagnostic block, and it tells us whether or not we are in the area and whether we're going to achieve results in that area. So like you said, Ralph, I think that the selection and the diagnosis is really important. And then going on to how we do the diagnostic block. Um, And I'm going to let you answer that. Well, well, thank you, Deborah. Essentially, what I do with the diagnostic uh, block is I'll have the patient come to the operating room, and it's a very simple procedure. They, they ultimately lay on their on their belly, uh, and under X-ray, I'll take some pictures of these uh, joints that I want to block, and and I'll inject a little bit of local anesthetic at at each location, and and that's pretty much it. Uh, after the in, the injection, um, I'll have the patient uh, essentially go back to the. Uh, uh, post-operative area and uh, from there we will we will examine them and ask them how they feel and and typically um, if if this block is successful we really don't have to wait very long time Uh, patients should be able to tell you within a half hour if it's going to work or not and and that's that's pretty much what i do and from that point then i give the patient the option let's see how long this lasts there are times that simple injection like that may last a long time or if that doesn't last, there's there's other procedures we can do, such as uh, one called radiofrequency thermocoagulation, where we actually heat up the tissues around the nerves themselves, the the nerves that are affected by the pain, and and this can give long term relief. Uh, you know, if you look at the data out there, there's some data that says it's it's six months, and typically most patients do get six months, but I've had patients get up to two years relief. And, and, and on, the, on the flip side, I've had patients only get three months, so it's really unpredictable, unfortunately. Uh, how much uh, relief we get from this itself. Um, But uh, I I think it's a great procedure, and I think if it's performed properly, patients do very well. Um, What what do you think are are the risks that are associated with this procedure, Deborah? Well, you know, before I get to that, I wanted to comment on one thing. And I know you're in a much bigger institution than I am, and you did say you take your patients to the operating room to have the block, the diagnostic block. Now, I just wanted the the people listening to know that I just do it in my office, right on my uh, my little table, my uh, camera table, let's call it. And so, you know, and I'm sure you could do it that way too if a patient consist, uh, d- insisted on that. So I just wanted to bring that up as a point and also want
wanted to bring up that in different states it's different, but you need a certain percentage of relief with the diagnostic block before you can be considered for the more permanent block. Now, in Florida, you have to have 50% relief in order for your insurance carrier to pay for you to go on with the more permanent block, which you stated is the ablative-type block. And, and But the, in states like Kentucky, which is near you, Ralph, I think you're in Oklahoma, uh, you need an 80% uh, response of improvement uh, with the, to the diagnostic block. And so, Ralph, I don't know what it is in Oklahoma, but at least in Florida, where I did say we have the geriatric population, if I get 50% relief with the block, then I can go on to the more permanent uh, procedure, which is the ablation, the radiofrequency ablation. And like you said, Ralph, I agree, that can last, uh, you know, nerves do regenerate. And so that can last six months to a year. And your carriers usually allow you to have one of those, if they work for you, one of those ablative procedures every year. So it might sound like a big hassle to go once a year to get a procedure, but you know what? If you get 50, 60, 70% pain relief, I can tell you you're going to be doing cartwheels to that doctor's office. So, so what are some of the risks uh, that, that you think are associated with the procedure, Deborah? Well, let, let's uh, separate it out. The diagnostic procedure, of course, anytime you put a needle in anybody, anywhere, you're a risk of infection. And we know there's a lot of superbugs out there these days, so we want to avoid infection. And uh, you know and I know we both take all the precautions necessary, have a sterile field, use sterile needles. And as you said, we use cameras to determine the direction of of the needle and the placement of the needle in the spine. So um, I don't really think there, I, I've do, done hundreds of thousands of these. I started doing, had my fellowship in pain in 1988 and um, hundreds of thousands and I've never had not one single solitary infection or complication. I did have a patient who told me he stopped taking his anticoagulants so I didn't worry about it too much but he did get a little what we call a hematoma, a collection of blood under the skin. So now when someone's on these type of uh, medications for the block, I don't take them off the medication, but I put a pressure dressing on after I do the procedure, at least for the day on the patients who take anticoagulation. But I don't know about you, Ralph, but I go ahead and I put the block in even if they're on the anticoagulants, you know, Coumadin, Eliquis, Pradaxa. I'm not sure if you agree with that. Actually, I, I do agree with that, and there's some new guidelines that have come out stating that that's actually uh, okay to do. Uh, and, and the reason uh, st- simply stated is, you know, uh, when you do these injections, can you compress the area and stop the bleeding if it does bleed? And, and th- this is one of the reasons I think uh, there's been a lot of change in this field, and people are now agreeing with that. Um, So, so Ralph, in my practice, I'm having great results with this procedure, with the diagnostic facet block going on to the ablation, especially in people with multifactorial back pain. Most of them have an MRI that says facet joint hypertrophy. My patients ask me, what is that facet joint hypertrophy? Or facet joint arthrosis. And like I said, the grinding and the wear and tear over the years, just like all the other joints. So I think it's a very good procedure. 
and we have the diagnostic approach, which tells us one way or the other. And so um, I'm very much in favor of this, and I think more of us should consider this as a first-line approach to multifactorial back pain. I, I agree with you, Deborah, uh, and I, I do. Uh, that's pretty much how I, my practice runs. Also, uh, you know, we run into into different uh, also causes of this, and this is why I think, as you mentioned earlier, proper examination techniques, and you could uh, essentially you could almost diagnose the problem by a physical exam without even doing the diagnostic injection. So uh, I agree with you a hundred percent, Deborah. So, Deborah, I have a question for you. So I, I get this a lot from my patients. They come in my office and they tell me, hey, doc, uh, you know, I've got my MRI and, and my primary care physician says I need to see a surgeon because uh, my, my facet joints are all hypertrophied, like you mentioned. Um, what do you think about that, Deborah? What, what's your opinion? Well, you know, for my personal self, for my family, for my friends, for my doctor colleagues, I recommend the invasive surgeries and the uh, extensive surgeries uh, way, way after all the conservative measures have been exhausted. Now, if we have someone who has had the facet joint injections and other things that Hans has discussed in these uh, little programs, uh, if they've exhausted all their options and they're still suffering and having difficulties with their activities of daily living and their quality of life is bad, then I say, okay, we must think about surgery. But before that, I would certainly think about all these other options that have been presented in these casts and and um, avoid surgery. Because you know today the results are 50-50. I mean, they may be able to fix the joint, but whether the pain is going to go away is a 50-50 uh, statistical probability. So uh, 50-50 isn't quite good enough for me. At first, I'd want to exhaust all the conservative measures. Deborah, I agree 100% with uh, everything you said. Uh, I think uh, surgery should be a last option, uh, if any. Uh, you know, when you have a facet joint disease, you know, what are they going to do? They're going to go in there and, and essentially fuse these joints. Uh, you, know, you may fix the level you're at. What does this do to the other levels? You know, biomechanically, you're going to change your spine. You're going to have biomechanical changes, more pressure at the levels above below the surgery. And like you said, it's, it might not fix the pain. So really, I think surgery should be the last option, if at all an option. All right, this part of the show, um, I like to bring up the jeweler junk, and I've got some world-class experts here that can help me uh, either develop opinions or help modify opinions about some things we hear about. And th this one's really expensive, and the reason I want to bring it up is I do have my patients come in from time to time, and they talk about spinal decompression, and they have spent thousands of dollars on this stuff and it may, may be a fancy machine that may have lots of bells and whistles but i just don't know what to think about it give me some input uh, start with you ralph well, I think some spinal decompression is, is helpful. Uh, you know, there's different forms. You can you can lay on a table with the what we call pelvic decompression, and the and the and traction can essentially uh, decompress your neural spine somewhat. Or you can uh, buy an inverter, uh, and and I personally have one, and you could invert at home. And, and does this work for your pain? It, sometimes it does. Uh, my opinion is that the problem is that short-term relief um, when you're inverted or when you're decompressing the spine, you're essentially 
uh, taking pressure off these nerve roots that have been uh, potentially uh, compressed, and and you're helping them, in layman's terms, somewhat breathe better, we could say. Uh, essentially, you're relieving the tension on them. However, uh, when you stand up, I mean, gravity takes effect, and you're back to square one. But with that being said, it doesn't hurt. Uh, it won't hurt the patient. Uh, is it worth it spending $1,000? No. In my opinion, I don't think it is. However, if you have an inversion table, it's not that expensive. I, I use one every once in a while. It does great for me, but my pain does come back. What, Deborah, what do you think? Well, I would agree 100% on that. And, you know, the prop, you know, I, I think you brought up a good point. I think if you want to do this, you can do it at home with, you know, one of these fancy little machines or just by stretching, by hanging on a door. But I, I don't think, like Hans alluded to, that you need to spend thousands and thousands of dollars with a formal decompression device at your um, chiropractic's or your neurologist's uh, office. So I do think that that it might be a mechanism you can use to take the pressure off the disc, like you say, because pressure causes pain, pressure causes inflammation. You take some of the pressure off, you get rid of the pain, you get rid of the inflammation, but as soon as you stand up again, you're combating gravity, and that's why we're on, we're held on the planet, because we have gravity, and if we don't want that, we have to go up to the moon, but um, that I, I would not recommend that anybody spend thousands of dollars on that. It's just uh, financial stress is more stress and more stress is more pain. Yeah, so I guess I can't emphasize enough. We all have to be consumers, even in the healthcare market. Say hallelujah. So um, uh, thanks again, and uh, I appreciate fantastic input, and uh, I'm looking forward to more to come. You know, you know, Hans, I want to say one more thing about that to Ralph. Uh, Ralph does the decompression himself for his own back pain, and it works, but, you know, the pain comes back because we talked about the gravity effects. But, you know, if that works, I would say to Ralph, great, do it. But if Ralph said he was going to his doctor's office where he had to drive and he had to take off work and he had to pay 35 to $50 for it and he had to do it two or three times a week, I would say, Ralph, you're crazy. But Ralph agrees with me, and I'm just recommending to Ralph as a friendly doctor colleague to just continue what he's been doing because, for me, that's healthy living. I think Ralph is using an inversion table, which is reasonable. It doesn't cost much. It's cost-effective. But... I think what I'm alluding to is spinal decompression of these thousands of dollars worth of machines that uh, uh, need a return. And uh, I just uh, – I think, I think the evidence does not necessarily say they are a robust option. It was a great discussion. Uh, two really fine physicians, and I can't speak highly enough about them. It's good to listen to folks like this that uh, have years and years of experience so that we can better understand, yeah, well, you can be helped. Yeah, there's good things out there for you. We just got to find the right combination. And this is an informational network, and I'm going to come on with more shows from the World Institute of Pain. And uh, we look forward to talking to you soon. And as always, um, look for help. Look for help with qualified people. If you have questions, ask them. We'd love to hear from you. So don't forget about us, paininformation.com.